Our scripture readings today come from Zechariah in the Old Testament and from Luke in the New Testament. I will now read from Zechariah chapter 8, verses 3 to 5. This is what the Lord says, I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Almighty says, once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each of them with cane in hand because of their age, and the city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. Verses 12 to 13, the seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, and the ground will produce its crops, and the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these things as an inheritance to the remnant of this people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so I will save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid, but let your hands be strong. Second reading is from the New Testament, uh, from Luke, uh, chapter 4, verses 17 to 20. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. And the last reading is from Luke chapter 23, verses 13 to 23. Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, away from this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown in prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified, and their shouts prevailed. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Today marks one full year of meeting virtually since the beginning of the pandemic. Exactly a year ago, we had my friend Steve Park, executive director at Little Lights, share on a true vision of what a renewed world looks like in God's kingdom. And since then, we have continued in this long list of calls for justice in our world, justice for black lives, for criminal justice reform, for environmental justice, educational justice, for healthcare equity, for the refugee crisis, against gun violence, and for secu food security, for sexual minorities. The list can go on and on. And even the January 6th events were a call for justice against perceived stolen elections. And that's just in America alone. It seems that the pandemic life has offered the world the opportunity to be more acutely aware of justice issues. 
and afforded us the time to learn more about them. At least that's certainly been the case for me. Yet, what is the church's role in making the world more just? With this long list of broken things in our world that's not even complete, it seems rather overwhelming. At worst, we can just block all these things out and saying it's just too much to think about and what difference can I actually make anyways? And maybe we're more in the middle of the road. We say, well, we believe that this, our faith gives us this spiritual conviction that eventually will overflow into the world around us as we work and as we go about our lives. And then maybe at the far end of the spectrum, our understanding of God's justice insists that every Christ follower must actively engage in issues of ju justice when they see injustice taking place. But wherever you land, I think we can all say it's really hard to do justice alone. As we conclude our Called and Community series today, we will explore what it means to be a community of and for justice. A community of, of and for justice has a true vision of justice and ha has a path to accomplish that justice. And to be a community for justice, we can walk together on this path of justice together. So a vision for justice, a path for justice, and walking together on this path of justice together. You know, often calls for justice are motivated by perceptions of oppression and injustice. That's usually what stirs us up. When we see a wrong, we want to see it set right. We see someone should do something about this. That shouldn't happen. But justice is more than setting things right or calling things out that are wrong. Justice requires a sense of fullness and of rightness that's defined outside of ourselves. Justice is more than a reaction to what we think is wrong. The Christian story grounds justice in the character of God. As Reverend Ince reminded us last week, God is beauty. So all of our longing for beauty is indeed a longing for God. So similarly, our longings for justice are also grounded in the character of God and in God's vision for a world that, has been, that is to be made right. Before there was ever injustice and brokenness in the world, God was, and God still is. Pastor and author of the book Overrated, Eugene Cho, writes, he talks about how justice is uh, grounded in, the f in, in a full definition of who God is, and that we see people around us as made in the image of God and the dignity that they inherently have because they are made in the image of God. It's a, it's a scene that we understand based on uh, what Zechariah describes in chapter 8, as, as Marjorie read for us. It's that sense of justice in why our hearts resonate with the images of Zechariah. We want to, the world to be a place where people of all ages are recognized as fellow image bearers of God, living in harmony with one another. We long for a world where the economy is flourishing and no one is left in want. We long for a, God's blessings to be revealed generously in the world, as we were reminded in the call to worship today. Zechariah's words convey this sense of oughtness that I think is universally desired. That's the world of justice that scripture paints for us. But how do we get there in a world that is really broken? As we heard read in Luke chapter 4, Jesus has something to do with it. When Jesus begins his active ministry after his career as a carpenter, he stands up in a synagogue and he reads the words of Isaiah's prophecy from 700 years prior. 
When Jesus is done, he sits down and he says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All those descriptions of freedom and healing and sight to the blind, he's saying, this is being fulfilled right now. At this point in his life, he proclaims how God's spirit is upon him to bring justice to the oppressed, the sick and the poor. And Jesus' watchers are eagerly anticipating liberation in all that they see is broken from their perspective. And we certainly see Jesus do some of that. People are healed. The marginalized are seen and affirmed. But here we are 2,000 years from that statement, and our world is still just as broken. Some might even say it's even more so than when Jesus first proclaimed these words. Division and marginalization are just as real today. And before he even began his ministry, he said these things were being fulfilled. So was Jesus a liar? Was he delusional? Or maybe he was just all talk. Maybe what he said was merely meant to be inspirational and aspirational, like a politician on the campaign trail. And so we're just called to follow in the, his posture. Talk big and not do anything about it. But I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Let's go to the other end of Jesus' life. Maybe things look a little different after we've given Jesus some time to do his thing. In the Luke 23 text, Jesus stands on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor appointed to oversee this backwater region of the Roman Empire that is Judea. And if you've ever come across this passage before, you might often hear of Barabbas being portrayed as the psychopathic brute who exudes the worst of humanity compared to the ironic and innocent Jesus. And for many American Christians, Barabbas is Jesus' foil. And in this typical framework, Barabbas represents all of sinful and guilty humanity that deserves the penalty of death. But Jesus takes his in our place on the cross as a substitution. And that certainly is true. But this approach ignores the socio-political cues that are found in this text. And I'm leaning on the helpful work of uh, Drew Hart here in his book, Who Will Be My Witness? It's a great book on justice and how to be a, uh, a, a community that lives out justice in the world. It's certainly true that Jesus is innocent before God. And that Jesus does take the place of sinners like Barabbas and of sinners like you and I. But if you look closer at this text, what is Jesus actually being charged with? This is where real issues of justice are being revealed. We're told in Luke 23, verse 13, where he says, Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. That's the charge that Jesus is coming before Pilate with. Jesus is a leader that many people have begun listening to and following. And the chief priests of Jerusalem don't like his influence as it's a threat to their tradition and to their power. So they scheme up a way to have him arrested, but they don't actually have the power to execute him and get rid of him. So they have to bring him before Pilate with this charge of stirring up the people and inciting them to rebellion against Rome. Jesus is mired in layers of injustice as part of, a, as part of a people who are trying to deal with these foreign powers who are over them, occupying their land, as an accused insurrectionist, as someone who has spurious charges made against him. All these layers of injustice. 
Now, it's important to understand the scene with the background of revolution that was in the air of the Jews living in Judea. You see, only 160 years prior to the scene, it's about the same distance that we are right now from the American Civil War. Another revolutionary leader named Maccabees led a successful revolt against the Syrian Empire. They stormed the temple with guerrilla tactics. They rejected the religious practices of the overreaching Syrian Empire, and they relit the candles of the menorah in the temple. And that victory ushered in a, a dynasty that lasted 100 years, ending in 63 BC. In fact, the Jewish holiday, Hanukkah, was founded to remember this particular event. That revolution continued to shape radical Jewish political imagination and dreams and informed dreams of messianic revolt all the way through to Jesus' time. They looked back to Maccabees because Maccabees valued scripture and a willingness to accept martyrdom. And they were uncompromising in resisting when power crossed a line, believing that God was on their side. I wonder, if, can you think of any contemporary groups that might get fired up in similar fashion based on a historical conflict? The Maccabean revolt and the story of the Exodus informed much of Jesus' revolutionary contemporaries who sought freedom from the unjust rule of the Roman Empire in their land. We often overlook the importance of this scene where G Barabbas is mentioned in all four gospel accounts. All four gospel writers talk about the scene. Why the repetition? Because it mattered to the first hearers of the gospel. All Jews were learn, longing for freedom from the empire. They were looking for a Messiah to come and deliver them from the way that God had delivered their ancestors. They were longing for justice, a fullness of God's kingdom where things would be set right according to God's promises for them, recalling Isaiah, the words of Isaiah that Jesus quoted, recalling the words of Zechariah that was read. We hear those expectations for revolution in the questions of Jesus' own disciples when they're following him and in their readiness to bring a sword to the fight. But Jesus again and again refuses to engage in their path of revolutionary work the way they want. In Jesus, he says to his well-meaning but trigger-happy disciples in Matthew, saying, put your swords back into its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. So this scene that we have is not just a comparison of merely Jesus' innocence regarding sin compared to Barabbas' uh, wickedness, but it's a comparison of two paths to revolutionary justice and liberation. In fact, Matthew's account highlights the distinction in how he refers to their names. In Matthew 27, verse 17, he says... When the crowd gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? The name Jesus was a common Greek word for meaning God saves or God delivers. And Matthew is hinting to his readers and to us, do you want God's liberation and salvation in the way of Barabbas? Or do you want God's liberation and salvation in the, in the way of Jesus? In Luke 23, verse 19, we're told that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. He had a proven record in the eyes of the Jews. 
He was tired of humiliation and of oppression, of poverty and domination of the Roman Empire over his people. He was a courageous one who had garnered a large Twitter following and did the talk show circuit, but now he was in prison for murder and insurrection. Jesus, too, longed for a just and righteous world. He preached a radical message to the poor. He condemned the wealthy and invited people to new lives that were ordered around himself. But revolutionary reign would arrive in a different manner than how Barabbas was going about it. In Matthew 27, the same text, the same parallel account of the scene, Pilate asks them who they want to be released. And the Jews say, we want Barabbas, not Jesus. The Jews don't like what they're seeing in Jesus. This man, he's our savior. He's our deliverer. What has he done? Sure, we've seen him do some miracles and approved a few lies, but Barabbas, he's going to get us where we want to be. He's already taken the lives of our oppressors. He's sticking it to the man. We want his path of justice. Let him go. Crucify the other Jesus. You know, when Pilate asks the question, who do you want to be released? And who do you want to be crucified? He's also asking us the same question. What kind of liberator will we trust? What path towards justice will we walk? You know, both Barabbas and Jesus wanted justice and liberation, but they differed in how that would come. Jesus would not see justice and liberation come by religious or physical violence. This justice and liberation would not come by taking out those who held power, political power or economic power in the Romans, or religious power in the chief priests and the Pharisees. Though that would eventually happen when God's kingdom comes. Justice and liberation would not come from having his views represented in society and enshrined in the law of the land. Justice and liberation would not come from equal representation of oppressed people groups, though that will eventually happen. Instead, Jesus models a different path to justice and freedom, and it's more than aspirational. It's more than a good idea. He calls his followers to walk this path of justice together. This leads us to the final segment. The first step on this path of justice is to lament. When the community of Christ followers comes together and begins to walk this path, the first thing we do when we see injustice is to lament. When Jesus sees his contemporary, contemporary revolutionaries like Barabbas, we don't see a response of anger or of condemnation towards them. What we see is lament. His sadness is expressed in Luke chapter 19, verse 41 to 44, when he says, uh, when he looks upon Jerusalem and and anticipates the loss of Jerusalem, the holy city of God in the impending Jewish-Roman war that would take place 30 years after his death. As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. Lament is the first response towards injustice that short-circuits our desire to avenge and to assign blame and to cancel others. Lament helps us recognize not only our sadness, but the sadness of who is indeed in control over the universe and will ultimately deal justly. 
Lament allows us to see and identify the injustices of our world without becoming overwhelmed by them. You know, I've been volunteering with a group called Evangelicals for Justice. And one response to the events of January 6th we hope to do together is lament the Christian nationalism that informed much of what happened on that day. We'll be gathering together at noon on March 26th to pray and to lament together. The Zoom details are here on the screen, and you can replay and pause this stream to jot down the link details, and we'll get that out in the newsletter. You know, lament is a countercultural, is countercultural to the American way of puffing our chests and touting our accomplishments and never admitting our own complicity. You see, the American way is to point out our enemies and why we should be afraid of them so that we can garner enough support to take back what we feel is rightfully ours. But lament says that, you know, we're broken. And the only way out is to look to our deliverer, Jesus Christ. It's the way that Jesus models for us all the way to the cross. I mentioned uh, Eugene Cho's book, Overrated, earlier in this message. He offers a challenging critique for many Christ followers who consider themselves advocates for justice. The byline for his, the title of his book, Overrated, says, Are we more in love with the idea of changing the world? than actually changing the world. You know, a lot of people are for justice. And we make a lot of noise on social media. But it's more than aspirational and more than a good idea. It's more than lament. At the cross, we see the second step of justice-making, of setting things right, of liberation. And that comes through shared suffering. You know, at the cross, we see how Jesus enters into true suffering and he bears the burdens of his people who are oppressed by sin's power and, and that is death. When we compare Jesus with Barabbas, it's easy for us to snub our nose down at people like Barabbas, thinking ourselves to be more civil and more sensible. But Drew Hart reminds us that setting things right also means empathizing, not only with those we think that are most oppressed, but also with every Barabbas around us who is fighting and liberating, seeking liberation the only way that they know how. But Jesus invites us to join in life together, both with the Barabbases, but also with the, those who are oppressed, sharing intimately in our suffering and taking up our cross in the struggle to see God's reign become a more, more of a reality in our world. Religion scholar Samuel Perry recently tweeted a top 10 list of indicators of Christian nationalism. Number four on his list is contempt for the cross. That means if you show contempt for the cross, there's a high chance that you are leading towards Christian nationalism. It's here on the screen for you. It says, Christians didn't take up the cross in Christian nationalism. Because real Christians don't have this, have, sorry, I can't read it. Well, you can read it there. Lay, laying down one's rights for one's enemies is, is like surrendering. It's un-American. Therefore, it's also un-Christian. Ultimately, what Jesus models for us in this path towards justice is the path of meekness. As Jesus articulates in the Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. The meek will see God's blessing as he's promised to the prophets like Zechariah and Isaiah. The meek will see God's goodness. 
The meek will see God's justice come. Meekness, though, is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. To be meek is to recognize the power that you have access to in God. But, to never, to, but never to use that power to shame the other or to take power violently from others. Instead, meekness is to withhold using that power to break others and because we recognize that can break us at the same time. Meekness is the opposite of using power that dehumanizes us. But meekness is also not saying that all power is bad. Instead, meekness recognizes God's power and authority and uses power for the service of God and of others. And that's ultimately what Jesus does on the cross. Jesus doesn't take on slavery directly, but the arrival of God's kingdom does. Jesus doesn't take on the oppression of Rome directly, but the arrival of God's kingdom does through people who follow in Jesus' footsteps. As we go about our lives and are moved by injustice in our world, we are right to feel that way. But will we respond to injustice like Barabbas or like Jesus the Christ? My prayer and invitation to you is to walk this path towards crossed cross-shaped justice together with fellow followers of Christ. Let us walk this path with lament, with sacrificial burden-bearing, and with the meekness of the one who calls Jesus to himself. Oh, calls us to himself. And we shall indeed see justice come rolling like mighty rivers. We shall indeed be a community of and for justice. To the glory of God. Amen.